Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Mark Meckler. Uh, he joined us a few months back, actually, to speak about that H.R. 1 bill in Congress. And here he is going to talk about a fresh issue that has come up. He is the president of Convention of States Foundation and Convention of States Action. He, uh, before that, he was the co-founder of Tea Party Patriots. Uh, from February 2021 to May 2021, Mark served as the interim CEO at Parler, uh, the goal being there to help bring uh, a little free speech social media company back online and uh, equip it for uh, a stronger future. Uh, you are here to, as I said, discuss uh, something else. Mark, uh, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Uh, the, the issue here is a lawsuit just filed, as we're taping here, by Donald Trump against the big tech companies. Now, before we get into that, I mentioned Parler. Uh, what was your experience with Parler? Why, why did you get involved? Well, I got involved literally as a volunteer because I felt like the fight for free speech is really the tip of the spear. So whether I'm fighting for the Convention of States project and calling a convention to rein in the federal government, whether you're somebody who just believes in free speech, whether you're fighting for the right to life or privacy or whatever it is, whatever your issue is, the public square is now the Internet. And if we can't speak freely on the Internet, if we can be silenced on the Internet, then we're going to fail in all of those other fights. And it's not a fair fight. And so I felt like when Parler got taken down, this was the largest free speech platform, frankly, ever. It was becoming a competitor to Facebook and Twitter and all these other platforms that are so censorious. And when they got taken down, I felt like that was a line in the sand and that I wanted to participate in getting them back up online to show big tech that they could not cancel our speech. So that was my reason for getting involved. Well, well Mark, to tell uh, some of our listeners may not know the story here. Who took Parler down and why? So this really all stems from the events of January 6th, uh, at least allegedly. And after the events of January 6th, Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook pointed at Parler in media appearances and said, this is all Parler's fault. Parler doesn't do adequate content moderation. By that, she meant censorship. Parler is not an adequate censor, and therefore all of this was organized on Parler. And that caused a firestorm around the country in the tech industry and, frankly, in government and everybody aiming at Parler. The House Oversight issued a series of questions via letter to Parler, and you had the Google Play Store first said they were going to take Parler down and take the app off the Google Play Store. Uh, Apple said the same thing. 
Google then did it, Apple did it, and then the real death blow, what really killed them, was not the, the app coming off the app stores. It was actually Amazon Web Services, where Parler was hosted, and 55% of all the world's websites were hosted. They flipped the switch and killed Parler's web servers and took Parler off the web. I think this was done for two reasons. One, I think it was a clear attack on free speech and a diversion from Facebook to, to another actor. It turns out most of the organizing the little which was actually done was done on Facebook. So I think it was a diversion. I also think it was an anti-competitive maneuver. And what I mean by that is Parler had a policy of not monetizing data. They still do. They believe in data sovereignty, data privacy, your data belongs to you. And this is antithetical to the model of Facebook and Google and Twitter and all these other entities. They hate the idea that somebody might compete with them on a different economic model. We're doing so successfully. So that's what happened. Parler disappeared from the web literally with the flip of a switch. And I came in and part of my job was to work with the existing staff and get them back online, which we ultimately did. Okay. Uh, actually, why don't you tell us quickly, how did, you, how did you make that happen? Yeah, you know, interestingly, I think it's a lot more difficult than most people think because it's not just the web servers that went offline. There are multiple layers in what I call the stack, a technology stack that it takes to have a major website online. Uh, there's all kinds of protections against hackers. There is domain registration. All of these things literally got pulled from Parler. So it wasn't just the web servers. All these other companies came together and denied services to Parler. Even something as simple as customer service software. We had third-party customer service software allowing us to issue tickets and manage customer service issues. All of those things got pulled. So First of all, it took finding a hosting company or hosting companies, I should say, redundancy of hosting companies that would actually allow the presence of our web servers. It took a fight with Amazon just to get the data off of our existing web servers and our base code off those web servers. Uh, then we had to find a new domain registrar and everything else you could imagine that it takes to rebuild. And then ultimately, we rebuilt the, the base code software and got new software up and running. Uh, new hosting providers that are all what I would describe as loyal free speech providers and some redundancy in that regard ultimately got them back online. And then finally, after a long series of negotiations done by our chief policy officer, Amy Peacock, who I think is just a genius, has the patience of a saint to be dealing with Apple, they got us back in the app store as well. Uh, Mark, I, I have reservations about you going after Apple because Look at all the amazing things that Apple has done with China, forcing China to open up issues of speech and the way, the way uh, uh, Apple has fought the Chinese Communist Party so vigorously. What do you think? No, I agree with you. And this is why you'll <laughs> that Parler is not on the Google Play Store and we never even negotiated with them. Uh, we negotiated with Apple because we felt like they have a different ethos when it comes to free speech and when it comes to especially data privacy and data protection, they've actually taken a stand against the United States government and iPhone doesn't have a backdoor much to the chagrin of the United States government. So there's no easy way to hack an iPhone if you're the government and you want to get into somebody's iPhone. So I agree with you. There is a, a certain level of philosophical alignment. The downside is that Apple does believe in some measure of censorship, which Parler and I don't believe in. I, I believe in a marketplace of ideas. That means sometimes we're going to see stuff that we don't like, that's offensive, that we vehemently disagree with. Apple was not comfortable with that kind of stuff. They, they still are, not to the extent of, of Google, but they still are woke censors. 
And that's a place where we still, where Parler still differs with Apple and there's still ongoing negotiations. Yeah, no, Mark, I, I, I find that when Tim Cook uh, is so strong about um, uh, diversity and inclusion and tolerance uh, in, in American society, uh, that the, the idea of, of Apple being so, uh, so based in China is, 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 rather, uh, is rather absurd. Yeah, but there is, I mean, <laughs> this is the weird thing about Apple. There's a dichotomy there, right? Because Apple does, you know, do all, virtually all of its manufacturing in China. They are very tightly tied to, to China and the Chinese regime. When it comes to data privacy, they're really one of the leaders on the Internet. And right now there's a huge fight going on between Facebook and Apple. And a lot of stuff that Facebook did with data uh, has been essentially demonetized because they won't allow the Facebook app on the Apple store if Facebook abuses data in the way that they do in their basic model. So this is this weird dichotomy in Apple where they have a thing about data privacy, but at the same time, I agree with you, they kowtow to the, the CCP, which frankly, one of my prime issues, CCP is the most evil regime on the planet. They are the Nazis of the modern era. Okay, what did the tech companies do in, in, in January? So specifically what they did in January in regard to Parler was, you know, so you had this January 6th event. They blamed Parler for all the events of January 6th. I believe they conspired to shut Parler down. It started with the public signaling by Sheryl Sandberg. Congress got involved. And so it was just pile on the, the scapegoat, really. They made Parler the scapegoat. Now, Subsequent analysis has shown by George Washington Center on Extremism, they said that virtually all of the organizing, to whatever extent it took place online, and by the way, I don't blame any of the social media companies, but to whatever extent it took place online, the vast majority of it took place on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and not Parler. And so they use this as an excuse to go after a competitor and to stifle free speech. And this is just one in a long line of things. I think what's important to note is this was sort of the culmination of all of the censorship. And obviously, they also then removed President Trump from the platforms and silenced him. So I would call January was the month of the great silencing in the United States of America. What did they do to President Trump? Well, they literally banned him. And so they shut down his accounts, which was astounding. You had the sitting president of the United States being censored by these giant social media companies. And I think it's interesting. And I know we're going to get into the discussion of President Trump's lawsuits. But what's most interesting to me about that is they did it in conjunction with the American left in government. Certainly, the Democratic members of Congress were in support of this. Uh, at this point, we knew who was going to be taking over Congress. You know, we had an idea who the president was going to be, albeit it was very murky and still is very murky, in my opinion. But Congress was signaling and and certainly the Democratic establishment was signaling that they liked all of this silencing. So what they did is they silenced President Trump in much the same way they silenced Parler. They took away his platforms for speaking to the American public broadly and as he saw fit. Okay. What is the legal basis for the lawsuit? So the lawsuit has an interesting and, and I would argue somewhat tenuous legal basis. But I want to be clear when I say it's tenuous, it doesn't mean I think it's not viable and it doesn't mean I don't think it's a good idea. The basis is primarily a First Amendment claim. 
And what should immediately strike people as interesting or perhaps difficult about that is that the First Amendment applies, and the, the exact language says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So note it says Congress, and it says no law, and President Trump is suing under the First Amendment auspices of the First Amendment. So clearly, Congress has not made a law abridging his freedom of speech, nor the freedom of speech of everybody that's been censored by the, these companies. And so the question is, how do you get to the First Amendment? And this is what makes this lawsuit so unique and I think potentially groundbreaking and important, depending on how the courts rule. The theory is that certain actors can essentially be acting as the government if they act under government auspices. It's called the public actor theory. So in order to invoke the First Amendment or, frankly, any of the protections of the Bill of Rights, it has to be a public actor engaged in those things. Uh, the exception is uh, 13th and 14th Amendments. But in all other of uh, the Bill of Rights, in order to say that the government is violating your rights, it has to be the government. And in this case, these are private entities. And there's a long tradition in this country, and we've heard lots of people say it in regard to the situation. Hey, these are private companies, and they can do whatever they want to do, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And so the groundbreaking theory is here, and this comes out of academia. There's been a lot of folks talking about this over the last several years. What happens when these social media giants have so much power that they essentially are the public space? Are they acting as a government actor in that regard? So one theory is they're just so big and they control so much of our communication and they have the ability to silence so much speech that they are a government actor. Now, the second way of looking at it is what I would call the coercion theory, which is you see Jack Dorsey of Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg of, Zuckerberg of Facebook and others being called before Congress and actually just raked over the coals by Democrats. And the Democrats are saying to them, if you don't censor the, the terms that they use is if you don't stop the spread of misinformation, then we're going to force you to do so. We're going to regulate you. And so they are being essentially threatened and coerced by the government to censor speech in a way that the government would never be allowed to do so. So the argument there is the government is trying to wire around the Constitution by getting third parties, these giant social media oligarchs, to do their bidding. And thus, they are actually, in essence, government actors subject to the protections of the First Amendment. I think that's a, a fairly reasonable theory under the circumstances. And then the third approach to this is to say that government is actually cooperating with these entities and getting these entities just to happily voluntarily do their bidding because they're essentially in league with each other. The Democrat, when we say the Democrat Party and we say the tech oligarchs, we might as well be redundant. We are redundant when we say that. They are this one and the same. The tech oligarchs support the policies of the Democratic Party and vice versa. So they are in cooperation. And the argument goes when government is cooperating with third parties to get them to do things that the government is constitutionally prohibited from doing, then again, you should apply the protections of the First Amendment. So these are unique theories. They've been coming up out of academia and I do think it's time we take a look at these theories seriously. I think that's what you're going to see in these court cases. Now, the tech companies can't claim any commercial motive for the, the cancellations, the, the censorship. They can't come into court and say, look, if we didn't take this kind of action, we were going to lose millions and millions and millions of users who were asking us to take this step. That, that's off the table, correct? 
No, I don't think it is. And, and the reason it's not, Mark, is because it's, there's going to be a threshold question. This, this litigation is going to take place in a particular sequence legally. And the first sequence, the first, very first thing that's going to happen, I imagine this happens within the next 30 days, is all the plaintiffs are going to file motions to dismiss. And those motions are going to be based on a simple uh, thesis, which is that the plaintiff has failed to state a claim. And, and by that, I mean, the First Amendment doesn't apply to Donald Trump or the rest of the class uh, in the essence in dealing with private companies. It doesn't restrict the private companies. And so there's no claim. If Trump and his attorneys, if the class can survive that claim, then we're going to get into the kinds of arguments that you're talking about. So what will the next phase will be class certification. I think this is a very interesting strategy by the Trump legal team. And I agree with the strategy. I really like it, which is one of the things you're looking for in a litigation is discovery. And for lay people, that just means it's your ability to tell the other party, hey, I need to see your documents. You got to open up your file cabinets. You got to show me your emails. You got to produce people who are going to have to give testimony under oath. And a discovery phase usually comes fairly uh, well into a litigation. In a class action lawsuit, because of what's called class certification, it happens pretty quickly. So we get motions to dismiss, we get past that threshold. And then the question is, is this an appropriate litigation for a class? The way a court determines that is they want to know, are all of the members of the, the alleged class similarly situated? And by that, I mean, basically have the same claims, the same types of damages, not necessarily the same amount, but the same types of damages, the same types of claims, censorship, shadow banning, uh, absolute banning, all of these things do. And I would argue they do, but here's how we find out. Trump's attorneys will ask the companies to turn over their emails, to turn over the algorithms, to turn over all their policies and procedures showing who gets shadow banned, how do they get shadow banned, how often do they do it, how many people did this happen to. All of these items, all of these inquiries will be relevant in a determination of class certification. And if we get there, this is where it gets really dicey for these big social media companies. We, we don't know what their algorithms say. We don't actually know what their policies are. They're very murky about this intentionally so they can do whatever they want. If we're able to get into those emails, those depositions, those algorithms, it could be very dangerous and very damning for these companies. I think that's where the litigation gets very interesting if we can get there. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. You know, the other night I was watching ABC News and they mentioned uh, the day the lawsuits were, were filed. They mentioned the lawsuits deep into the broadcast, the half-hour broadcast. And it, it lasted uh, no longer than the subsequent story, which was about a, a bear attack in, in Montana or Idaho. I can't remember where. Yeah. That, that they gave it about 20, 25 seconds. Is this generally has been the media response to these lawsuits? 
Yeah, it's it's incredibly dismissive. I do want to be fair, though. This is a novel legal theory, and the courts have generally not accepted it. So one of the things I'm hearing in what I would describe as the opposition media is these cases have no merit, and they're just going to get dismissed. And truthfully, that's entirely possible, and it is the likely outcome. It it will also likely get appealed up through the courts to the Supreme Court, and, and you might end up in the Supreme Court on this. But I, I do want to be fair to the journalists covering it. They are right that this is a stretch of First Amendment legal theory, but I think there's a lot more behind it. I don't think they're giving it a, a fair hearing like we're doing here and talking about all the different possibilities. And also, I think there is a political component to this, as there always is with Donald Trump. And I think this is equally important from my perspective. Rasmussen did polling recently, and the polling said that 63 percent of Americans believe that these social media giants should be subject to the limitations of the First Amendment. And so there is a very strong public appetite for this. So it's not just about the litigation. One of the things Trump is is really good at is understanding the sentiment of the American public, and he's speaking right into the sweet spot with this litigation. You know, I think a lot of us feel what you mentioned earlier, how these social media companies now are almost becoming synonymous with the public square. They're not, not just an actor within the public square, but they're, they're shaping it. They're, they're hosting it more and more, which would seem to put a lot of the precedents uh, maybe not entirely relevant to this situation. Can they make that historical argument that we're in a whole different civic communication climate at this point? Yeah, I think that's an entirely legitimate argument. It is a the question is, can it be made as a legal argument versus a policy argument? So, you know, I'm an activist. I'm a policy wonk of some sorts, and I'm a lawyer as well. So I'm looking at it from all these perspectives. And one of the things that I think would be most important is that we have this debate in the American public and decide as the public, not not having the courts by by judicial fiat, but as the public decide, are these the public square and should they be regulated in some different way? Should there be a different constitutional standard? These are things that we, the people, all have the power to do. And I actually think that's the best remedy. You, you'll hear a lot of talk, Mark, around this subject about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It was an act passed in 1996. It is literally, in my opinion, responsible for much of the growth of the internet. There's a lot of good in there. Section 230 was important and very good at the time. Basically, it provides liability uh, immunity for these giant social media giants, uh, these now tech oligarchs, for essentially censorship. What it says is they're not going to be deemed publishers who control content if they do some moderation. And the purpose for that was really actually quite conservative, to be honest with you. The main purpose was to prevent uh, pornography being on sites like Facebook or Twitter. And it allowed them to censor that stuff. And But what happened over the decades is it became political. So there is a phrase in Section 230 that says, or otherwise objectionable, materials otherwise objectionable. And now that means anything that a guy like me might say, <laughs> certainly things that Trump might say, anything conservative has become, quote unquote, otherwise objectionable. So I think there's a very good argument for limiting Section 230 and for recrafting that thing. Heritage Foundation has a good paper on, on how this should be done for recrafting it for the modern era. 
And I would also add, this is actually another good theory as to why these folks are public actors or state actors, because they have been granted this very special immunity by the United States government, which is allowing them to do this censorship. And I think you can make an argument that because of that, they're state actors subject to the First Amendment. Uh, you think that, you know, apart from the legal prospects of the case, there are some real upsides in the non-legal aspect of it. Simply the declaration of war against the, the tech monopolies itself is, in public terms, a good thing. Well, it's certainly a good thing, according to polling. As I said, Rasmussen found 63% think that the tech oligarchs are practicing censorship and they shouldn't be allowed to do so. So he's speaking to almost two-thirds of the American population when Trump files this lawsuit. He also elevates himself as a champion of the people. This is what he's always been best at. He came in. We didn't know exactly what his policies would be. We frankly didn't understand his politics based on his very mixed past history. But the one thing that he was consistent about is in saying to the American people, I believe in you and I'm with you. And this lawsuit does that for him. And at a time when he's largely been silenced in public by these giant social media platforms, he's not found an appropriate home. I, you know, I put the blame on that for him. There are plenty of platforms that would have had him because of that. He needs to put himself in the public eye if he wants to remain in, as relevant as he has been, a leading figure on the right. This helps to put him back in the public eye. I also think it's important on a philosophical basis from my perspective, because there is a war going on right now in America, and it's a war between the technocratic, self-appointed ruling elite and the regular people of this country. I would argue the regular people are who makes this country great. This technocratic ruling elite, they hate us. They have absolute disdain for us. Their attacks on Donald Trump were not so much attacks on the man as attacks on the rest of us. They're outraged that we won't just do everything they tell us. We saw that reach its zenith during all this COVID insanity where the technocrats, the bureaucrats felt like they should be able to control every aspect of our lives and they hated us, they arrested us, they fined us when we wouldn't go along with what they said, no matter how illogical. This is representative of that fight. And I would argue as an activist and a guy that's been engaged in this kind of politics for 10 years, this is the existential fight. We must fight back against this self-appointed ruling elite. We should oppose aggressively everything they do. We should practice civil disobedience. We should disdain them and mock them and attack them at every opportunity. Mark, 10 years ago, you mentioned, did you see this coming, the, the, the politicization? Well, let me, let me go back even, even further. Uh, you know, back in the 90s, you, know, you, you go back to 1995, Silicon Valley was supposed to be this wide open, freewheeling, libertarian zone of free speech and, and do your own thing and let the chips fall. Has this slide into censoriousness and bias surprised you? Yeah, it surprised me in the extreme. You know, I, I've been involved in this stuff literally back in 93. I was an Internet attorney. That, that was literally what my practice was. So this is the very early days, all dial up, all that stuff. And what I loved about the Internet was it was the Wild West. And there really actually at the time there weren't even laws surrounding the Internet. We, we were arguing as lawyers about whether copyright applied on the Internet. So this was these were amazing times and it was total freedom and silicon valley was literally all about 
libertarianism and and the free market and the idea that this was going to be a place that was outside of governance essentially people could express whatever they want we thought it would bring freedom not just here in the united states but all over the world because of the free flow of information and ideas so to watch it, it and it did serve as this by the way it was a decentralizing power it allowed people like you to host podcasts and allowed people to publish ideas that were unheard of or unpopular all over the world and get large audiences. So it served that function. Unfortunately, over time, it re-centralized itself in these giant oligarchical companies, which are now in an active conspiracy with the government, not just here in the United States, but all over the world to control people. So it went from being this wide open Wild West thing to frankly the most censorious tool we've ever seen in all of world history. It's quite a turn of history. Are they so stinking rich that they have no fear? Yeah, I, I think that's <laughs> accurate. There's and they're they have no fear. And I would I would argue one other thing, and it's hard for regular folks like you and me to understand. They're so rich that money doesn't matter anymore. You know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg or any of these guys, Bezos, anybody that runs these giant companies, they have so much money they have private jets, they have private islands, they have multiple houses, they can travel anywhere in the world with the snap of their fingers. Money is not relevant to them anymore. And so what happens to people like that when money is not relevant, the thing that becomes relevant is power over other people. And that is really at this point, this is all these social media companies actually care about. They actually don't even care about the bottom line. If they lose a few bucks, there's so much money, it doesn't really matter to them. When you see these giant corporations going woke, they don't mind if they lose a few bucks. They want to control people. They want to control what you see, what you think, what you hear, how you act, what you ultimately what you believe. What these giant companies have become is the ultimate tool for the imposition of fascism. And that sounds really radical. And I've been calling the left fascists for the last four or five years. I used to get a lot of grief even from my friends on the right saying that was hyperbolic language. Benito Mussolini, who was the inventor of fascism, uh, you know, the Italian fascist dictator, said that fascism, fascism is designed as everything in the state, nothing outside of the state, and nothing against the state. And if you look at the platform of the left in America today, they say the state should be able to do everything. There's no action that you take that should be able to be outside of state purview. They should control how and when and where you worship. They should control what kind of toilets in your house, what kind of fuel you put in your, you name it, right? They should be able to control all of that. And the thing that's the most new in the modern era is they're using the tech oligarchs to say nothing against the state. They now have a tool an observation tool, a surveillance tool that is carried by virtually every American, almost every person in the world in a modern society. This is new and unique in the world of fascism. And the fascists of old would have fantasized about having a tool like this. So, so Mark, you know, Google opened some store over, over in Chelsea across the island here. And someone said that when you walk into the store, Google does a facial recognition of you. It's going to look at your clothing. It's going to look at where your eyes go. Is that paranoia or is that real? No, that's absolutely real. I'm not, that is cutting edge retail technology. They're doing it online now, if you think about it, right? So when you're online, all of your shopping history is online. It's all collated into massive databases. These databases have gotten incredibly good at predicting what you do. There's some good that comes from this in that, you know, you get fed ads that 
fit your preferences. If you're a runner, you're going to get running gear. If you're a camper, you're going to get camping gear. You're not going to get stuff that doesn't appeal to you. So it makes it convenient for us and it lulls us into a false sense of security. When you move out into the real world on the streets and the Chinese have facial recognition technology that's literally on the streets, every major city all over their country, they know where you are by facial recognition at virtually every moment of every day. So this technology exists. It's very sophisticated. It works really well. And they're going to be using it in those stores. And ultimately, I think it's coming to a street near you if we, the people, don't resist this kind of stuff. Last question, Mark. There is no sign of any conciliation on the part of the defendants here, is there? Is that a dumb question? <laughs> That's a dumb question. No, absolutely not. Look, and, and here's the reason. There's two reasons. One is a commercial reason, right? This is their base model. They need to be able to do this stuff. They love the control. But I would also add, and most people don't realize, is the numbers are astounding. I, you know, I saw this when Parler sued Amazon. Amazon has roughly a $1 billion a year litigation budget. In other words, their, their resources are infinite. One lawsuit, even a big lawsuit, it's not relevant to them. If President Trump were to win and this class were to win $100 million, $200 million, $500, a billion dollars in damages, literally, a billion dollars would not affect the bottom lines of any of these companies. It wouldn't affect their stock value. Their shareholders wouldn't be upset. So really litigating against these companies, they're going to litigate forever and spend as much as they have to spend. We will see what happens. Mark Meckler, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.